If it's Wednesday, we have chief political writer Seth Richardson with us. We'll be talking about the mayor's race. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth Richardson, along with our colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. How are you all? Great to be back. Doing okay. All right. Well, let's get rolling. Might Ohio voters get the chance next year to fully legalize marijuana like Michigan and Pennsylvania? Jane Cahoon, this is another exciting political story that just dropped in our laps <laughs> yesterday. This is this could be very interesting next year to have that on the ballot. What are the chances? Uh, well, I'd say there is definitely a chance uh, of this, or there's always a chance that the backers of this campaign are going to use a strategy to basically force the legislature's hand and pressure them to act, you know, without putting it before voters, like what happened when we got uh, medical marijuana several for several years back. I, I think the possibilities here are all really intriguing. And I, after I describe this, I really want to hear what you guys think about the, the political implications here. So it's a group called the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. They have a website, just like alcohol.com, and uh, a lot of the same backers um, as a similar effort last year that that failed, that they couldn't get it going because of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, and they couldn't go out and gather signatures in person. So uh, this it's a statewide initiative campaign, and it, they launched the first step of it already by submitting a thousand signatures. And this this is serious and appears to be well-funded, although we don't know specifically who the donors are yet. That That is to be disclosed later, I guess. And But we know it's extremely expensive to, to run a campaign like this. But they've got two prominent Columbus firms, one aligned with Republicans and the other with Democrats, that work on issue campaigns uh, behind this. They've also got a nationally prominent signature gathering firm, uh, working for them. So they they would aim for the November 2022 ballot, which already has this Senate or U.S. Senate race for the open Senate seat of Rob Portman, the governor's race, other statewide offices and, you know, the redrawn congressional districts. So this would really liven things up for, for that election. Um, and basically this this issue, it would create a division of cannabis control within the Department of Commerce to, to regulate adult use and issue licenses to um, medical marijuana businesses and new ones. Adults could grow up to six marijuana plants at home with, with no more than 12 plants in the household. They would tax marijuana purchases at 10%. The, the backers of this estimated it could bring in like $400 million uh, a year in new, in new revenue. And then they divide the tax taxes up against, I mean, among a number of entities, you know, one being a fund for cannabis, social equity and jobs, you know, that's uh, aimed at allowing people from all backgrounds to own and work at, at marijuana businesses. And then and then other programs like substance abuse and addiction. And right, let me let me regulation. stop. You. Yeah. When, when you say 400 million, that that's the tax revenue. Right. That's not the size of the industry. The industry. Right. Would, right. 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 Would be billions. Right. Right. So. So, I, you know, you brought up what happened when we got medical marijuana. And really, as I recall, there were a couple initiatives being discussed then. One was full legalization. One was medical marijuana, a medical marijuana uh, initiative. And the legislature, you know, having been stung by their inaction on casino gambling and having that become a ballot initiative, they they moved and to, a monopoly to thwart those. But they 
you know, let's let's face it. What the legislature did was they slow walked the thing. They they did everything they could to make it difficult. It was the worst uh, designed system we ever saw. It took forever to get it going. The legislature and I suspect Mike DeWine now really don't want legalized marijuana. And so when you say this could push them into doing something, I think the something they would do would be to, to thwart fully legalized marijuana yeah. you know i was thinking along the same lines but but i've been giving it a little more thought now you know if you were the republican party and you had all these important races on the ballot next year would you want a medical would you want a marijuana legalization no, issue on the ballot you know i mean there's just a lot to think about here that's interesting i mean and uh, the way this process works um once they get beyond, they get their ballot language approved and they and they get all the, the go ahead here, they can start gathering uh, a little more than 132,000 ballot signatures from registered voters and they got to get them in 44 of 88 counties. And then, then it would go to the legislature. And then if the legislature either fails to act or pass it, passes it in some sort of amended form, they can go back and collect another, you know, more than 132,000 signatures to put it on the ballot. So, um, you know, I just, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's did, really intriguing. Did they explain why they're going the law route instead of the constitutional route? We've talked before, it's not that much harder to do it as a constitutional issue. And then the legislature can't mess with it. That's true. Um, well, that kind of lends credence to the thought that they might be just trying to pressure the legislature, right? I mean, I, I, I can actually I jump. Know. Yeah, if go I ahead. can jump in here, I've, this is Seth. I've actually covered this group before. They, uh, when I was in Nevada, they um, did the same thing. And part of the reason, like Jane, you bring up a really good point. Part of the reason that they do it kind of this method is they they do want to put some pressure on the legislature to potentially pass it because they know that. Um, you know, marijuana, recreational marijuana is pretty widely popular at this point. And most people kind of accept it. And they do know that it, it is a turnout driver that does especially scare Republicans since it's kind of associated with Democrats. Although I think that might actually be a little bit of a fallacy just because, you know, it, it is so widely accepted at this point. The other reason. That, that, the, the other reason let me that, interrupt you. Let me interrupt you. That doesn't explain, though, why they're going with the law route instead of the constitutional amendment route. Uh, I mean, I think, Jane, it's been, what, four or five years since the medical marijuana, but wasn't part of that a constitutional amendment or were they both going for for changing uh, the law? You're I, testing my memory there. Uh, that was a, it was a constitutional amendment it in, was? in okay. 2015. The reason that they go the law route is because there becomes, if it's a constitutional amendment, it becomes really hard to change any of the policy that is involved in this. And that becomes an attack line for um the the opposition to basically come in and say well no they want to make this and what if there are any problems with this and you can't change it because it's a constitutional amendment as opposed to if it's a law you know you have a little bit of uh, uh wiggle room to you know change any kind of regulation or change so it easier of, to sell to yeah. voters is that what yeah. you're saying it, yeah it makes it easier to sell to voters okay well this is going to make uh next year even more interesting governor's race senate race chief justice of the supreme court pot on the ballot <laughs> you're listening to this week in the cle how did a plane full of passengers get a bit of a thrill ride tuesday as they came in for a landing at cleveland hopkins international airport Lord johnston the faa was trying to downplay this but it sounds like it was pretty frightening 
I think so. Um, this maneuver is apparently called a go around and the FAA says, you know, it's a planned procedure, but I don't think any of the passengers on a plane want to be on a plane that has to do that. So the pilot of a Frontier Airlines flight out of Orlando broke off their initial landing on Tuesday afternoon after a vehicle was too close to the runway at Hopkins. The idea is that you break off this landing after the pilot has already begun their approach. And Cameron Fields talked to a passenger who who's basically said they were relatively calm but generally confused because they were, you know, in sight of seeing the ground. And then they had reached an elevation of 1,175 feet. Then it went up back to 1,900 feet and then up to as high as 3,900 feet before eventually descending again. So yeah, I don't, I don't think you want to be like, okay, we're landing. Oh, we're not landing. Well, she said they were seconds from touching down on the runway. And then all of a sudden the throttle gets thrown and they're racing up. So when, you know, as, as Hopkins has had some histories of runway problems. And so we called the city and we got a statement saying there was no incident, which actually there was an incident. What what I'm surprised at is the way the FAA said, oh, this is for passengers. This might seem unusual, but pilots are trained to do this. There was a vehicle that that made them wary. It was moving too slowly. So they just did the go around. I've never heard of a go around. I've never been on a plane that's done a go around. And I haven't heard from other people that have done a go around. It doesn't sound to me like it's all as common as the FAA is saying. If you're coming in for a landing on the runway, you're seconds from touching down and all of a sudden you're rocketing back up into the air. That seems mighty unusual. I, I would think so. But yeah, their statement was like, the event might seem like an emergency maneuver, but the controller and pilot are in control of the situation and taking the action before any unsafe condition could occur, which obviously you would rather do a go around, you know, than hit something on the ground. But why was there a truck moving slowly that alarmed the pilot? Yeah, exactly. I, I We're going back at the FAA to say, OK, this is common. How many times has it happened in America at airports in the past year? We're going to let's find out exactly how common this is. I also asked about it on my text account today. Did I, has anybody mm, been idea. on a plane that's done that? Because I, I haven't. And and if I did, I would never forget it. You are listening to this week in the CLE. Is it possible that First Energy lied when it claimed in a legal filing that it did not bill customers to pay for the bribery scheme that has roiled the statehouse? Seth Richardson, they put out a statement yesterday that they're reconsidering what they have said previously. How come? Well, as part of the deferred prosecution agreement that they entered with the Department of Justice, um, you know, they're basically staving off any kind of um, uh, guilty plea or conviction or anything like that for three years and they're going to pay this $230 million fine. But another part of that deferred prosecution agreement is basically them saying, we, uh, we, we cannot say anything that contradicts what we say in this deferred, um, deferred prosecution agreement. Back in September of 2020, there was a PUCO, uh, Public Utilities Commission of Ohio filing, where they said that they did not uh, pr- pass on any House Bill 6 cost to customers, either directly or indirectly. Now, with this deferred prosecution agreement in place, the uh, you know counsel for First Energy is saying, well, hey, we need to go back and reevaluate this because, you know, maybe this is not going to be in alignment with this deferred prosecution agreement. And if they're not, then they, you know, face all, you know, quite a few charges possibly. So the, the moral of this story is <laughs> that it might have been OK to lie before you made an agreement with the feds. I mean, they're, they're basically acknowledging the possibility that they lied. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's that's essentially what they're saying. They're they're using um, <laughs> um, uh, less harsh words on themselves, I guess you could say, by saying they're quote unquote reevaluating what they said. But um, you know, it certainly seems like they're saying, hey, yeah, we actually might have lied in the past, and we need to go back through these and amend anything just so that we don't run afoul of this agreement that we have with the Department of Justice because. This is the thing that is kind of, you know, saving our hinds from you know, any kind of prosecution from DOJ. I don't know, Jane Cahoon. Don't you think if you're the utility that's been roiled and embroiled in this controversy and you're you're claiming you're trying to become an ethical company, you fire your CEO, your chief ethics officer, you start making all these statements. Wouldn't you think that you would make sure that any statement you made was true before you made it in a legal filing? Yeah, I guess. Well, but it goes back, Seth, didn't you say September 2020 when they yeah. when they made this? So, you know, maybe they didn't have their whole strategy all lined up. That was probably before Chuck Jones got fired, wasn't it? Oh, so this might have been the previous administration lied and the people that are trying to save the utility or cleaning it up. Well, that would make yeah. more sense. Cause Am I, I wrong? Just... Isn't it? Didn't he get fired like in October? So this, I, I believe he was fired yeah. after. And one thing I did kind of wonder after seeing this story is, does this make the ground that those executives were standing on even shakier because this deferred prosecution agreement does not prevent the department of justice from charging first energy energy executives individually. Oh no, and, no. Yeah. Right. We, we're, yeah. we're fully expecting that. Although remember yeah. Chuck Jones said, nothing to see here you're listening to this week in the cle what's the percentage of people who have been hospitalized or died of covid in ohio this year who were not fully vaccinated jen cahoon this is so tragic this is all needless needless suffering needless death yeah it's just overwhelming i mean the department of health says that 98.8 percent of those hospitalized with covid this year were not fully vaccinated and 99.5% of people who died with COVID were not fully vaccinated. So, you know, <laughs> Bruce Vanderhoff, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the medical, uh, the chief medical guy at the Department of Health was asked about this this week. And he said, you know, this is fast becoming a very dangerous and worrisome situation for people who are going without the protection of vaccines. And, you know, that's partly because of this Delta variant that's much more transmissible. And, uh, you know, he, hey. Vanderhoff has basically said with this Delta variant becoming more dominant and, and if you're not vaccinated, basically you should expect to get COVID. And, and, and another sidelight to this is that the daily number of new cases are, are starting to rise. We've blown past a thousand now. It, on Tuesday, it was 1,317 new cases, far in excess of anything reported to date this summer and the highest total since mid-May. So, know, you know. I, 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 it's, I keep thinking that this is mostly people who've gone down the rabbit hole of Facebook and are anti-vaxxers and are, are basically just nuts. They're risking their lives based on phony science. But I was talking to some colleagues elsewhere in the country yesterday who'd done some surveying of people who are unvaccinated and they found it was not largely politics, that it was people who didn't know that the shot was free or people who didn't have some basic yeah. understandings. And it, it shocked me because I, I would think that by now everything that is 
available to be known about this vaccine is is known. But if there are large numbers of unvaccinated people that just don't understand that there's a shot waiting for them with their name on it that's free, then maybe we're all doing a bad job of spreading the word. Uh, and it just needs to be more publicity. I think stories like this one by Laura Hancock, if it reaches the right people, may make a difference. I mean, you don't have to die. You don't have to get deathly ill. You don't have to lose gray matter in your brain. You don't have to suffer long haul symptoms. Just get the shot. And yet yeah. so many in Ohio are not. And I mean, we have seen some Republicans just in the last week or two come out and say, you should get vaccinated. I mean, I don't know where they were before, but um, I I was going to say, you know, despite whatever findings you, you just cited, that it, it is sad that it still is a politicized issue. You know, it, it's it's just it's sad. Well, and what what's mind boggling about that is Donald Trump did almost nothing right in the pandemic. I mean, he lied about it and he didn't act. The one thing he did right was he invested a lot of money in vaccines to make sure that the U.S. would have access to them. This is the Donald Trump vaccine. He did it. And yet it's the Donald Trump followers who are saying it's, yeah, it's it a plot. Yeah, it makes, doesn't make sense. I mean, he gets credit for this. He did it. So so rally around your former leader and get the shot. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority breaking the Ohio Sunshine Law? Laura Johnston, this has been a very difficult year for public bodies. They couldn't mm -hmm. meet in person. They had the exception in the law where they could do things remotely and people could follow on screens. But that's over. What's happening with the RTA? Yeah, it certainly sounds like there are laws being broken here. And the people who would know, like the experts, are telling us, yes, no members of the public were allowed to attend the Board of Trustees meeting on Tuesday. That was the first public board meeting the RTA had had since the July 1st expiration of the state law. It was a temporary pandemic law that allowed for meetings to be conducted remotely. So, But instead of allowing the public in, the public had to watch the meeting on Facebook, submit comments by phone or website. And that's not allowed, that was allowed under the temporary law, but not now, according to First Amendment attorney David Marburger and Catherine Terser, who's executive director for a good government group called Common Cause Ohio. They said this is pretty cut and dry, like they don't even see a lot of wiggle room here. But the RTA said the restrictions are to comply with COVID restrictions. They say they don't have a big enough room to let people in and still socially distance. They can only hold 44 people and 40 or more board and staff members routinely attend. But Courtney Astolfi did a great job with this story. She said one view of the meeting room that was live streamed showed staff members sitting close together, much less than six feet apart. I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, there's a public outcry. A couple of people who normally speak at board meetings were mad about this and actually told them, you know, during the meeting that this was not fair. But maybe there'll be a court challenge or maybe they'll just realize they don't want the bad press. Well, and let's remember, there was a, a law put into the budget that would have allowed people to challenge Sunshine Law violations mm -hmm. the way we challenge records law violations through the court of claims. It cost 25 bucks. And Mike DeWine vetoed that because he wants people to have to hire a lawyer and have the huge expense of going into court to compel their leaders to do the right thing. I still don't get why he did that. It's almost like he's an attacking the sunshine law. This is an example of why we needed that law to remain and shouldn't have been vetoed. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Okay, Seth Richardson, this is why you're here. What did we learn at the recent editorial board interview with the candidates for Cleveland mayor? And I have to say, it was one of the best editorial board endorsement interviews we've ever done. You know, I would agree with that. And um, on kind of a, a different level, just to be clear, I don't have anything to do with endorsements. I just sit in on these for the news value of them. But one thing that did strike me kind of throughout the whole thing is, you know, I've sat in on a lot of these and there's always this kind of gap between you know, one or two candidates and then sort of the rest who were in there, right? With this editorial board meeting, there were six candidates in there throughout the whole, you know, the two hours that you all talked with them. It didn't seem like there was any kind of breakaway candidate who was necessarily the front runner. All of these candidates seemed like they could really make a case for, you know, that they could sell to the public for why they, you know, should be the mayor. And it, you know, everybody seemed to have kind of a, a lane that they could really occupy to really be kind of successful with their campaign. That was one of the greater takeaways that I had just from watching it and, you know, kind of in concert with some of these other forums and stuff that I've been watching as well. Uh, you know, on the policy side, I think one thing that did kind of surprise me is just how much um, opposition there is to the uh, proposed initiative to create the civilian review board for police. I thought that would be you know, especially in an election year, something that uh, uh, more candidates for mayor would kind of uh, latch on to. Uh, the only candidate who said they were for it was Justin Bibb, the you know, nonprofit executive who's never held public office. Uh, everybody else seemed really resistant to that proposition, either through, you know, either because it was flawed, they said, or because they really didn't want to take any power away from the mayor's office, which was a common theme for why uh, they, they didn't support it. Um, and another kind of interesting, there was just sort of this agreement that I was really surprised about where pretty much everybody that was there said they agreed in, in some form or fashion with giving public dollars to uh, places like Progressive Field or other sports stadiums. And I, I was a little surprised by that just because they're has been this kind of shift in attitude somewhat in recent years towards public dollars going to sports stadiums. So to see everybody basically what? in unison on it was kind of surprising. It wasn't everybody. Zach Reed uh, yeah. didn't yeah, didn't true. make a statement, but he has he fought the the Q deal. I you know I what on that issue they all said they agree in principle. I, I suspect that when the progressive field deal gets announced and they see specifics, they they may take issue with it because i think there could be some some pushback the the what, what surprised me there were a couple of things that surprised me uh, I, I didn't know sandra williams well which is odd because she's been a politician around here for a long time and it's amazing to me how many people i know who really know nothing about her leaders all over town it's like yeah i don't really know her well she's been around for a long time so that says something but she's a very good debater and zach reed and bashir jones both took a cheap shot at her and she waited very, very quietly until it was her turn again and eviscerated him. She, it was great to to see her to the point where she got apologies from. Yeah, from yeah. That was <laughs> I, the other thing that that I that struck me was that in almost all of the candidates, when we ask questions, would start to answer with whatever their policy points are, but then start to speak extemporaneously like they just thought of something except for Justin Bibb and to a lesser extent, Kevin Kelly, Justin Bibb had, had clearly thought out 
all of the, the, the things we asked about, had very clear ideas about what he's going to do and research to back it up. I mean, one of my favorite moments was, you know, uh, the, the Dennis Kucinich is pandering by, by saying, I'm going to hire 400 police officers, which the city cannot afford and, and it would not solve the problem. And, and others took issue with, with that. But Justin Big came back and said, look, it's not about the number. It's about how you use them. In other cities, X percent of the officers are on the street as opposed to being behind desks. In Cleveland, we're far below that. And he had the numbers. And he said, we have to do a better job of deploying what we have. No one else had that level of specificity. Kevin Kelly had a million position papers. I mean, very much the college professor, Nebuchadnezzar guy, has a lot of position papers. And so he was not acting like he just thought of these issues. He, he's clearly thought most of them out. Um, the question for Kevin Kelly is, you've been the council president for eight years, the second most powerful position in the city. Why didn't you do any of this stuff as the council president? So that was, that, and that kind of came back in his face. He, he used that attack on Zach Reed. Hey, Zach, you were on council. Why didn't you fix any of this stuff? And it's like, well, you're the council president. <laughs> Where are you? Um, anything else stand out for you? Well, to your point about Sandra Williams, I, I did just want to make this point that I think she kind of flies under the radar a little bit because she is in Columbus and we know that Democrats in Columbus don't exactly make headlines, right? They don't have a lot of power. So it's, you know, it, it's just, they're kind of just there. There's, there's not a lot they can really do. And I, I, I have wondered about her um, prospects just because she has not run citywide or anything like that, but she has been on the ballot in something like 11 of the 17 wards just by virtue of, you know, her district. So I wonder if some of that community familiarity will, uh, you know, really boost her and all that. But uh, no, I, I think although, that, although Seth, I don't think she's ever been opposed. I don't think she's ever actually had to run. I, I think she had a tough primary her first time, but yeah, I mean, it's a safety district. She's not facing, uh, she did face Jeff Johnson a couple years ago, um, but I think she won pretty handily. Um, but yeah, I think the the big takeaway, like, like I said at the beginning is each of these candidates did kind of seem, you know, legitimate for lack of a better word, right? There didn't seem to be these, you know, hangers on on the sidelines who just kind of got in. They, they all seem to really be able to make a case for themselves. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating race. We haven't seen anything like it in Cleveland in my entire time here. And, and I agree with you. They all have, a, they all deserve a seat at the table. Uh, and it was one of the richest interviews. I mean, we, I thanked them at the end because I, I just was so impressed by how they presented their arguments and, and dealt with each other. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is the move to provide broadband in underserved Cleveland areas getting a big boost? Laura Johnston, a lot of money being pumped into this. It's a big cause lately, largely because what we learned of in the pandemic. Yeah, it's a big cause and we keep writing about it, but it feels like it's been little drips of money. And, and you look at the numbers and they're still so low of the numbers of houses being served with them. Um, the U.S. Census American Community Survey had named Cleveland the worst connected town in cities with 100,000 or more households in 2019. So the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Supporting Foundation and David and Inez Myers Foundation are donating $20 million to Digital C. It's a nonprofit internet service provider. The idea is to bridge this digital divide we keep talking about. And the idea, Dorothy Bonick, who's head of the Digital C, said her belief is this money serves as a challenge to get other organizations, private sector, government to also contribute. They hope to get a slice of stimulus money through the Cuyahoga County government. And they want this to be the big push. Only about 1,100, sorry, 
Yeah, 1,100 Cleveland residents receive internet services from Digital C, and there's about 170,000 households. So they're designing a network to cover 130,000. I mean, that's a much, I mean, that's more than 10 times what they've got now. So they need about $60 million to cover most of the city and also to teach people how to use the internet um, so that they can actually access this and, and benefit from him. So that is all a work in progress. Well, and there's also the state money and the state mm-hmm. budget for helping underserved areas. It seems like this is, even though it became political to say that broadband is a utility because it became a wedge issue, it, it, it feels like pragmatically speaking, we are going to treat this like a utility. We're going to make sure everybody has access to it, which is right, because every school kid who was home last year needed that access. So nice gift. We'll have to see how Digital C proceeds with it. There's a lot of work to be done. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Seth. Let's get to another day of news gathering. Thanks for everybody who listens to this podcast.